Well, as we come to look at that passage together, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we've sung of uh, the wonder of the cross. Uh, we've sung of being lost in wonder and praise. And Lord, we pray that you might um, add substance to that feeling of uh, wonder as we look at your word now. Please give us understanding, uh, Lord, as to what you did for us and teach us what it means for us that we might truly uh, worship you with wonder and praise. Amen. Well, St. Ebbs or St. Aldates, St. Tom's or Christchurch Forwards, charismatic or conservative. It was a dilemma that I faced 12 years ago when I was a student, um, fresh at Oxford University. Do I go to the charismatic church or the conservative church? Um, If you're a Newcastle fan, please make your own adjustment to those two. Uh, The story behind it lay uh, something like this as a Young Christian, I had two conflicting influences, well, complementary perhaps, in my life. Soon after I became a Christian, I uh, um, uh, I played the organ for a very charismatic church. I went along to an Alpha course. I prayed for the gift of tongues. And as a musician, um, I uh, began to love uh, the whole worship leader thing. That That was my dream, to be a worship leader. I loved the closeness I felt the emotional sense of joy and worship that I felt when I played. But deep down, I was troubled. I lacked assurance. Well, alongside that was a, a deeply conservative influence uh, through a school Christian union and summer camp. An influence that taught me the gospel very well. But if I'm honest, as I look back, often robbed me of a sense of freedom with which I could express myself emotionally as a Christian. So as I went up to Oxford, the dilemma was very real. Do I go to St. Ebbs or do I go to St. Aldate's? Charismatic church where it was was rich in music, but where the teaching was often a little bit woolly. Or St. Ebbs where the teaching was very solid, but musically could be a little unsatisfying. Maybe you recognise something of that caricature. Um... It is a struggle sometimes to know how to connect our emotions and our, our thoughts as a believer. Now, there are many issues that that um, dilemma that I faced raises, each one of which is worthy of a talk in its own right. But I want to look at that dilemma that I imagine many of you will recognize in some form through the lens of security, this issue of security. What is it that makes us secure, both objectively before God, but also subjectively, emotionally. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, speaks of guilt. I read, For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Guilt. It's an issue of insecurity. What is insecurity? It's something that creative people suffer from uh, quite a lot. You see the quote on your sheet. Creative people are very insecure people because they don't know whether people like them or are in awe of them. That insecurity always comes out. It makes them a better actor, I feel. For actor, read musician or artist or any creative type. What is insecurity? Well, it's the feeling that you're not quite good enough. That you're not quite acceptable enough, either to God or to others. 
So before God, we worry that we are sinful. We feel sinful. We, we are sinful. We think, God, if you knew what I was really like, we doubt whether he loves us because we're aware of our sin. It's a feeling of insecurity. Before others, we feel as though we're not attractive enough, not gifted enough, not funny enough, and we feel out of place. It comes out in many different ways, doesn't it? I wonder if you recognize any of these in yourself. So individually, insecure insecure people can often be very driven, driven to prove themselves, and therefore often quite busy people, uh, busy to to show that they are, are worth something. Insecure people are often very anxious about failure. You think, I failed just one too many times and I'm scared to fail again. It can be quite manipulative people as well as as their agenda is the thing that drives them and and they sort of mould other people around that agenda. I wonder if corporately as well, insecurity can show show show, uh, show itself in different ways. We can focus on the law rather than grace. So we think about obedience in, in, in such a way that it's driven by guilt. I've got, to, I've got to obey, otherwise God will get me. Or, or we serve in a, in a very busy and driven way, not out of joy, but out of fear. Fear that we're not doing enough and we're just not good enough. And I think in our singing and our music as well, we can often look to singing and music and the emotional experience that it provides to give a sense of assurance and peace. Before God's. I wonder what about you tonight? How secure do you feel before God? Are you feeling anxious or lacking assurance as a Christian? Are you conscious of some sin? What about before other people? Do you sometimes feel, you can sort of know in your head that you're okay with God, but actually in reality you feel often very, just not good enough with people? Well, Hebrews 10 gives us the answer to this problem tells us that the cross is the secret of the Christian's security, both objectively before God and therefore subjectively in our feelings. The message of Hebrews 10 is very simple. It's this. Only the cross of Christ leaves sinners completely secure before God. Only the cross of Christ leaves sinners completely secure before God. Now, the context of this passage and of Hebrews is Significant Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish believers who were tempted to let go and drift from Christ. Look, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. The writer says that we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. These believers were tempted, probably because of persecution and trial, to let go of Christ and to go back to the Old Testament way of relating to God. And in particular, view in chapter 10 is the Old Testament sacrificial system by which people were uh, made right with God. And the writer of the Hebrews is, is adamant that, he, that they mustn't go back, they mustn't let go of Christ. And he does it with a warning and with an encouragement. And the warning, number one, my first point is this. Old Testament-style offerings leave the sinner insecure. Old Testament-style offerings leave the sinner insecure. And this is verses 1 to 4. Now, again, the context here is the law, uh, God's expression of his character, God's commands to his people, and the sacrificial system that went with it to support it. 
Now, do you see the problem with the law and the sacrificial system specifically in verse 1 is that it didn't work. It didn't work. You see, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Do you see the problem? The sacrificial system didn't work. See the great problem in the Old Testament? The great problem of the whole Bible since the fall is how can sinful people be made right with God? And in the Old Testament particularly, how can God have a group of special people? How can he maintain a relationship with them when they sin? It's a problem because of us, because of of people. We keep on sinning. Sin Sin is deeply ingrained in our character. But it's also a problem because of God's. You see, sin makes him angry. Sin creates a tension in his being. If I had a bottle of Coke, I would shake it. Imagine a Coke Coke can shaken vigorously. Sin is like that. It creates a tension in God. Because God is holy, you see, his, his character must sort of show itself in wrath on sin. He cannot overlook it. We sin and God gets angry. That's the problem. How can God have a relationship with sinful people? Well, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a temporary answer to that. The idea, if you'll know, very straightforward. Um, the idea was that if you sinned, you, you offered an animal in your place. And the, uh, the idea was that the animal died so that you didn't have to. Uh, you see, if you sin, you must die. The wages of sin is death. But if you offered a bull or a goat, well, they could die instead. But it didn't work. It couldn't make sinners perfect. It couldn't address the problem Sinners would keep on sinning and God would keep on being angry. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 2. You see, the, the sacrifices had to go on being repeated. You see, the, the writer asks, if it, if it could have made them perfect, would the sacrifices have not stopped being offered? They had to keep on being offered again and again and again as sins kept being committed. Well, what good were they then? Well, no good at all. Verse 3, all they could do was serve as an annual reminder of the people's sinfulness. An annual reminder that they couldn't stop sinning. Well, why was this? Well, look at verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, a bull and a goat is a poor substitute for a man, for a person. Now, we've heard in the papers recently, haven't we, of some dreadful murders. I read the other day of a girl, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old girl who's been convicted of a murder of a 13-year-old. Now imagine, horrifically, if that was me. Imagine I was up in court for murder. But what a farce if I were to bring my dog and say, look, he can go to prison instead. I mean, I've committed this horrible crime, but my dog can go. He can stand for me. It's it's ridiculous. It's a farce. It would never happen. Of course it wouldn't. And if it did, there would would be an outcry. A dog is a poor substitute for a person. And if that's true on a human level, how much more is it true with God? God who cannot look on evil. You see, there's a dilemma. Either we must die or we need a substitute, an appropriate substitute, someone who will become one of us. Do you see the problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system? Old Testament-style offerings cannot but leave the sinner insecure. Because it doesn't deal with sin. It can't stop me sinning, and it can't stop God being angry. 
And therefore, all it, all it can do is add to the guilt that the sinner feels. Both, notice that in, in the text, there's an, there's an objective guilt, as the text speaks of, in verse 2, of cleansing. There's this need for objective cleansing before God. But there's also a subjective guilt as the sinner feels guilty. And Old Testament-style offerings cannot deal with either of those things. Well, what is the lesson for us as Christians today? I think, too, notice that there is a reason to feel insecure. In other words, the passage links guilt and sin. And that is right. Guilt is a right response to sin. Now, modern psychology would have you believe that guilt is wrong. And that if you feel guilty, you must suppress it. But that's not true. In fact, guilt is a healthy feeling. It shows that your conscience is working. If you sin, you ought to feel guilty. Which means, I think, for the Christian, if you wrestle with guilt, you must need to ask, is there a specific sin beneath that? Uh, now, often Christians can struggle with guilt needlessly, and there's a, there's a sort of over-feeling um, uh, over of guilt that we can deal with. But even so, if you, fa- if you struggle with guilt... Acknowledge it. Don't suppress it. Um, Because guilt is a right response. And don't be surprised if you do feel guilty. But notice also that there is a wrong way to deal with feelings of insecurity. You see, verse 3, notice the problem that that the, the offerings of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Now, as Christians, we might not offer bulls and goats to try and make ourselves feel better before God. But there's plenty of other things that we can offer. Our time, our busyness, our activity. Subtly can become ways in which we try to prove to ourselves, or at least to God, that we are okay. if, If you're conscious of feeling insecure, but you're very busy and active as a Christian, it might be good to ask yourself, what is it motivated by? Are you trying to prove yourself to God? Trying to sort of sort yourself out on your own, by your own effort? I think music can also be guilty of this. Uh, We can look to the emotional experience of music to to be to us what only Jesus can be. We can try to build our sense of worth as a Christian, our sense of sort of assurance on those moments when we feel very close to him, when we sing. That might work for an evening, but you see it won't won't deal with the problem. We don't need a worship leader to bring us into God's presence. We need a saviour. We need a saviour to deal with our sin. And from the warning then, we move to the encouragement secondly, which is this, that Christ's offering leaves the sinner, I ought to say, completely secure. Christ's offering leaves the sinner completely secure. And this is verses 5 to 18. Christ uh, appears in verse 5. Christ comes into the world. And notice verses 5 to 7, that Christ, where we fail, Christ is perfect. Christ does the will of God, verse 7. Now these verses, verses 5 to 7, are a quote from Psalm 40, a psalm in which David is presented as a model man of faith who patiently trusts God and is is obedient to God. And the point here is that Christ is, is like David, but better. He's the ultimate David. Notice verse 7, Christ came to do God's will. And what was that will? Well, notice verse 5 and 6. God's will wasn't for this sacri- these sacrifices and offerings to continue. God wasn't 
pleased with them. And of course not, because they, they couldn't deal with sin and they couldn't deal with his anger as the coke can was shaking and, and, and people were sinning and, and God's anger was building up. Well, the bulls and the goats couldn't deal with it. God wasn't pleased with that way. It, wasn't, it, it, it wouldn't work. So what was needed was, was Christ coming and offering not a bull or a goat, but offering himself as the sacrifice. See, he says, verse 7, here I am. Here I am. I have come to do your will, O God. And what is that will? What it is for him to die. See verse 8. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them. But verse 9, he says, here I am. I've come to do your will. That's to die on the cross. To offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice. See, when you understand the richness of of what Jesus has done, it fulfills everything that the Old Testament points to. Jesus is the sacrifice. And in, and in one failed swoop, he does what thousands and thousands of, of bulls and goats being slain could never do. He completely does away with sin. See, verse 10, God's, God's will was, uh, was, uh, was to deal with the believer's sin, to make them, as, as the writer says, holy. But the old system could never do that. Only Christ dying once and for all could do that. See, verses 11 and 12 lay down the two alternatives. On the one side, verse 11, day after day, the the Old Testament priest who stands and performs his duties and and sacrifices animals again and again, but they can never work. They can never take away sins. Or, verse 12, Christ, his death. Uh, He's called in verse 12, this priest. Christ is the ultimate priest who offers not not a bull or a goat, but himself. And notice he offers once for all time. This sacrifice never has to be repeated. It is perfect. Well, how does the death of Christ really deal with our sin? How is it that in one offering Christ can can do away with the whole uh, sacrificial system and make us secure? Well, the passage doesn't specify, but it's to do with the blood. You see, look back at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says that there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And as we've seen, the problem with the blood of bulls and goats is it's not the sinner's blood. If I'm to be, if justice is to be done, it's my blood that is needed. And that is why Christ is so important. You see, as in Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that Christ shares the humanity of those he dies for. He, he comes out and, and becomes one of us. Now, of course, he never sins. But you see, because Christ is fully man, he can truly represent us. And because Christ is fully God, you see, here's the wonderful mystery of the cross. In offering himself, it, it's really God himself who is dying. It's as though God himself at the cross steps in the way of his own anger for you and for me. And you see, therefore, the, the Coke can is, is satisfied. The, the, the tension is gone. God is satisfied in himself that justice has been done. But it fell on Christ, not on you. And the result is that your, your sin, your real sin, is really punished by Jesus. And that God is really actually satisfied. Now, where does that leave us? We'll look at, again, chapter 10, verse 10, and see we're described as holy, holy, perfect, objectively clean, forgiven. 
And then verse 14, another way. We are perfect. We've been made perfect forever. Nothing for God to to look at us and be ashamed of. We are perfect before him. Well, this has a number of of wonderful implications for us uh, as as we start to close. You see, the big one is that we are secure. We are secure before God. We are forgiven. In Christ, we are perfect and holy. See, we are good enough in Christ before God. And you see, we should learn as Christians to build our sense of self-worth and our identity, not on what we do, but on Christ. It's the only place in the universe that is solid enough for our identity never to crumble. Why is that? Well, it's because God already knows the worst about you. He already knows the worst. He he knows what you're capable of, worse than you do. And so nothing will ever surprise him. No sin will ever take him by surprise, though we often surprise ourselves by our sin. Nothing will ever surprise him. He accepted you on full knowledge. And so you see, there is a place of healing for your other insecurities. Christ. It's, it's, he's a river deep enough to, to drown all your insecurities in because he will always accept you because of the cross. Well, second wonderful implication. You see, if Christ's death makes us holy before God, then, then no sin that we commit can change that. See, what do you do when you sin? How do you deal with your sin? If you're like me, you will confess it and then kind of still feel guilty, so you confess it again. And then probably still feel guilty, so confess it again, and on you go. But you see, when you sin, you need to remember that the punishment for that sin has already been taken 2,000 years ago by Jesus at the cross. And sometimes we think that Christ died for sins in sort of abstract, but he died for real sin. When you get angry with your spouse next week, when you lie to your friends, when you struggle with that one particular sin that no one knows about, Jesus died for that, and the punishment's already been taken. So you can confess with honesty, but also with joy, because there's forgiveness. If Christ's death alone satisfies God, then then thirdly, God doesn't keep a record of our sins. Now, sometimes we talk, don't we, of of wiping the slate clean. You know, in in relationships, you are as though you sort of keep a tally of sin and then you know, when you say sorry, that it's like the, the, the slate is rubbed and, and then there's, this list starts again. Well, is that how it is with God? You know, has God got a little slate and he kind of writes on it when you make mistakes and then you confess and he rubs it off, but then he starts again. Well, no. You see, look down at verse 19. Under this new, wonderful new covenant, God promises that their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. You see, the wonderful thing is that when you became a Christian, God's tore up the slate there's no more slate he's not keeping a record of your sins he's nailed it to the cross we talk we talk of wiping the slate clean but we don't need to with God's and then we need never punish ourselves for our sins how much of our busyness and our activity is sometimes due to a desire to kind of atone for our own sense of sin how often do we beat ourselves up about our own sin We don't need to, because in a very real sense, at the the cross, Christ was beaten up for us. 
So don't punish yourself for your sin. Is there a sin that you're carrying? Uh, I wonder some people do, some Christians do, maybe for many years, and you just can't quite let it go. Well, as you come to communion tonight, why don't you bring it with you and leave it at the cross? God, there's forgiveness for you at the cross. Well, let me just mention one implication of this corporately, and it's the musical one. You see, music cannot bring us into God's presence. Uh, That should be clear by by this. Um, And we often know that and we say that, um, but that's often as far as we go. You see, the truth is that we are already in God's presence. We are completely secure before God. Christ brings us in to God's presence. We are no more in the presence of God on a Sunday morning than we are on a Monday morning when we're at work. But you see, the wonderful thing about singing is that it's a chance to express the joy at being in God's presence. As I close, I want you to turn, if you can, to uh, a famous verse, um, Zephaniah 3, verse 17. (coughs) Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Uh, If you go back to the Old Testament, go back through Malachi and Zechariah and Haggai, you'll find Zephaniah 3. It's a famous verse, one that... Uh, rightly, um, we know well. Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, what, I did, I went, what really struck me about this passage is, if you notice the context, look back to verse 14. Verse 14, and see what God is commanding Israel to do. Do you see he is commanding them to sing? To sing, and not only to sing, but to sing with joy, to be glad and rejoice. Now the question is, how do they do that? Where do they get the motivation for singing to God with joy? Where does our singing start? Well, verse 17, it starts with God singing over us. Us singing to to joy with God, I'm sorry, us singing uh, with joy to God, Well, it starts from the the place of security that God sings over us. And you see, you might think, well, I'm insecure and I want to to sort of find my security in emotional high that that music brings. But see, if you realize that you are secure before God, don't you want to sing? Don't you want to rejoice in him? Isn't that a a much better place from which uh, to rejoice in God? So where does our worship and singing start? It starts with God singing over us. And I think that may be a a way in which the um, the head and the heart, emotions and truth can come together as we realize our security in Christ. And we let our music ministry flow out of that security. Well, don't go back to Old Testament-style offerings that leave you insecure. Instead, rejoice in your Savior who makes you secure before God. Let's pray. Just take a a few moments just to reflect uh, on what you've heard. Sing, O daughter of Zion, sing aloud, O Israel. 
Be glad and rejoice with all your hearts. The Lord has taken away your punishments. Uh, Lord, we praise you uh, from the bottom of our hearts for what you've done for us on the cross. Um, it's achieved something that we so often um, neglect to understand deeply. Um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to delight uh, strongly in you more and more from that place of security that you've won for us. Um, please help us to do that, uh, both tonight um, and also as we go in our music ministries. In Jesus' name.